Hey there, I'm Arielle Milkman, one of the contributing editors at Anthropod. Welcome to The Wrap on Immigration with Jason DeLeon and Maria Hinojosa. The Wrap on series is inspired by the 1970 conversation between writer James Baldwin and anthropologist Margaret Mead. This series was conceived by Beth Dardurian and Hilary Lethem. Wrap On pairs anthropologists with public figures to take on big topics that we think are important in the world today. We invited journalist Julio Ricardo Varela from Futuro Media to moderate today's conversation about migration. Julio, take it away. Now I'm Julio Ricardo Varela, the co-host of Futuro Media's In the Thick podcast. So today, in the Wrap On Immigration, I'm going to be moderating, I'm, I'm so excited, I'm going to be moderating a conversation between Jason De Leon and Maria Hinojosa. Hey, hey, hey. Jason is an anthropologist at the University of Michigan, and his book, The Land of Open Graves, exposes the human cost of, U- of U.S. migration policy in the deadly Sonoran Desert through archaeology, eth- ethnography, forensic science, and linguistic. Jason is the director of the Undocumented Migration Project at the University of Michigan and a 2017 MacArthur Genius grantee. Wow. And... I get to introduce Mariana Hosa as well. Mariana Hosa, my dear hermana and friend, co-host, is a journalist who has spent a 30-year career covering underrepresented and underexplored issues in the mainstream U.S. media. Since 2010, she has pioneered a space for her independent media and ethical reporting from a POC perspective as the president of Futuro Media in Harlem, of which I am a part of. Maria is the executive producer and anchor of Latino USA. Like I said, the co-host of the, our podcast, In the Thick, and the anchor and executive producer of the PBS show, America by the Numbers. Welcome both. Thank you. All right. Well, Jason, I, I wanted to ta- start off with your book in 2015, where you talk about the land of open graves. It's Like I said, it's based on your years of ethnographic work between Arivaca, Arizona, and Nogales, Mexico. You're a MacArthur genius in 2017. Your work has been featured in numerous popular and academic outlets, um, including that excellent series on Radiolab, that three-part series. So tell me a little bit more about the work, how your work has developed, and what you see your current research interest going. Well, you know, the work... Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here with with everyone. Um, It just I feel very honored to be in this conversation, so I just wanted to say that. Um... You know, the work for me, I'm a traditionally trained archaeologist, so for about 10 years my work focused on ancient Mexico, and um, I really had no sort of deep interest in immigration or politics, despite the fact that I had grown up on the um, southern uh, southern U.S.-Mexico border in South Texas, Mm -hmm. um, and then also later on in Southern California, both my parents uh, coming from um, immigrating to the United States, uh, growing up with a lot of undocumented family members, and being around this stuff for for most of my life, I went into graduate school not interested really in any of those issues, and um, being very interested in social science focused around ancient stuff. And what ended up happening was, over the course of almost ten years working in Mexico on archaeological excavations, I I got to be very close with a lot of the women and men who were hired laborers on these archaeological projects, who. Um, had had these traumatic border crossing um, stories and experiences. And it was through the course of, of working with those folks and hearing their stories that I decided that I needed to shift my attention towards um, this thing that I thought I knew a, a lot about just because because of the 
geographic proximity to my life and realizing that I had no deep understanding at all about what had been going on, um, especially in, in southern Arizona. And so I basically just jumped ship and decided to, um, to take on this whole new project, but trying to use the, 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 the tools of, of anthropology to understand this highly politicized and, and poorly understood social process. Hmm. And Maria, like, <laughs> this is like for me, I get to talk about your career for a second again. Your career as a journalist almost kind of matches Jason's career as how he got into what he's doing. So tell us of why, what got, you know, how your work has developed over the years, specifically in this capacity. Well, I wasn't born in this right. country. Um, so <laughs> I think that that, that like from at this point now, it's like, well, that's definitely become a thing, but, you know, not being born in the United States, um, traveling back and forth to Mexico every year with my family, therefore having a, a, a you know, an international experience, mm. but that really consisted of driving across that line, that border, um, from the time that I was a little girl up until the time as an adult, um, by land. Um, and then, you know, I end up basically, the, the crazy thing about it is that I've been reporting about immigration, whether for NPR or for CNN or um, for Latino mm. USA for, um, you know, over 25 years, 30 years I've been reporting this story. And usually when you're reporting a story and there's injustice, as a journalist, when you shine light on the issue, it's supposed to get better with more information, you know, with things coming to light, humanity is supposed to take over and these injustices, um, you know, the human rights abuses, uh, due process abuses, et cetera, they're supposed to be responded to by, um, you know, by laws, by society. And in this case, in the United States of America, the story of immigration and immigrants, um, legal and those who have come and overstayed a visa or, or came without papers, um, we have become more targeted now than we were 30 years ago. And so the horrors actually, the, the horrors have actually increased, not decreased. All right. So what I want to do now is, because I have this question for both of you, and I'm going to just step aside because I want, I want the two of you guys to sort of take this question and kind of talk to each other about it. Obviously, you, you raised it, Maria, like over the past year, even in the past year, we're hearing more and more immigration stories, stories about in the United States about about migration. So my question for both of you and Maria, you can start and Jason, you can jump in after. Do we need more stories about immigration at this point and why or why not? Well, I would never say no to that question. I, I would never say no. <laughs> The reason why we need more stories about immigration, uh, so it is a little bit complicated because the bigger framework of how we discuss immigration and demographic change as a result of immigration or births um, after um, immigrants stay in the United States. So that narrative has essentially been formed over the last 30 years plus by um, newsrooms in our country that are majority white male and of class privilege. And so as we recently saw with new um, data that was reported on by the New York Times, a lot of what motivated white America to vote for Donald Trump has to do with the fact that they were concerned about losing their quote unquote, their quote unquote place, um, their <clears throat> their power and influence in, um, in U.S. Uh, society. 
So I guess the question is this, if our newsrooms had been run by immigrants and people of color, would we over the past 30 years have been posing and reporting on these stories in that same way, which was, oh my God, immigrants are coming. Look at these numbers. Oh my God, by this year, we're going to not be, we're going to be a, you know, a people of color majority country and immigrants are, they're coming in and, you know, they're, they're, they're illegal. You know, they use that term and they say, what would have happened if there was a different narrative? Um, So that kind of is the bigger question of, you know, we need more stories about immigrants and immigration, but we really need to dissect um, and do an internal criticism, um, and I'm saying this to my fellow journalists out there, of their approach to covering immigration um, and, and, and demographic change. I think that's great. I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I think we always need more stories. Um, and I'm kind of in this moment where I think we need different kinds of stories about about the migration experience. We need more complicated ones. We don't need the simplistic... Um, you know, good or bad kind of narratives. And um, I, I'm i sort of, I'm interested these days in telling, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly with um, with no resolution because I feel like a lot of America is bombarded with stories about immigration, whether it's the evil brown invaders or look at how hardworking these folks are and they're, you know, living the, the American dream. And I think that um, we have to think about everything else beyond that because those two narratives have saturated the market, and um, and I want to tell stories these days not about immigration but about people. And if we can tell more complicated stories, perhaps the people that respond really negatively to these stories about immigrants can see a piece of themselves in um, in the human story. Um, but th- that's a real, I think, a very real challenge to get out of those kind of those, those two tropes because they're so pervasive. Let's let let's focus on the like I let's focus on those two specifics, Maria. Like. I'm just sitting here like listening to what Jason's saying and I'm like, not what we do, <laughs> not to like plug the work that you do, but I, I, having worked with you professionally and knowing you, I mean, you have plenty of these specific sort of complex stories. Do you, do you agree with Jason, what he's saying? And, and if so, like what, what examples? No, I, I totally agree with Jason. I think that this is, this is the kind of nuance that we're talking about, that if we had newsrooms where there were, where there was a lot of diversity and people who were immigrants or children of immigrants, then we would be able to, it cannot be a black, white binary in the sense of not just race, but in terms of, as Jason is saying, the the complexities of the story. And I'm thinking of um, our recent coverage on Latino USA um, of the story of Estrella, who is on paper a very unsympathetic uh, character. And that's why a lot of media did not want to kind of focus on her, because even though her case is one of the first public cases where immigration agents went in on plain clothes, um, sitting in the back of a courtroom um, and took her from a courtroom where she was getting an order of protection. Um, And Estrella is a trans, undocumented woman um, who is previously deported, you know, has been convicted of a crime of fraud. Um, And so, you know, she's not, she's got baggage. But just because she has baggage, is that a reason to then do this? Take someone who is getting an order of protection, um, who is deserving of protection, and what you're doing is then you're going to take them, charge them, detain them, incarcerate them. 
it, this is it's complicated, right? And by the way, what the other side of this story, Jason, is that, and I know you're seeing this too, and this is the cool part, right? Which is that people are taking their stories and their power as much as they can, whenever they can, into into their own hands. And so Estrella kind of is owning very much her own story. She gave us this exclusive um, for Latino USA because she understands that she has some power in, in how her story is going to be told. So in some ways, I feel like a lot of immigrants, their children, um, you know, social media is allowing certain, by the way, it's not everybody, but to, to t- kind of take control of their narrative and flip it from, you know, victim to something else. Yeah. Jason, what specific stories come to mind that you feel like are breaking that that simplistic trope? Well, I sort of think about it more partly because I'm constantly asked about what's the most heartbreaking story you've ever been told or give us a good story. And, you know, and I'm like, man, I can't, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. you know, I can't. Um, those aren't, I don't think about those things in those ways because that's not the, the how the world really is. Obviously, there are stories that break my heart, but um, they're part of much more complicated narratives. Um, and I've kind of reacted to it lately. Um, so I'm working on a project right now about smugglers, about Honduran, young men, Honduran smugglers who are crossing Mexico and um, people get really uncomfortable about writing about smugglers. Like, oh, are you going to now mm-hmm. humanize these people? Is that going to be really problematic? And I'm like, well, they are humans. And um, it, they're un- it, they do occupations that make us all uncomfortable, if not outright angry. Um, but they don't do this kind of in a vacuum. And, um, you know, I, I'm so I've, I've started moving towards things that, that both make it more ethically and um, kind of emotionally challenging for me to tell a nuanced story, but also partly to kind of push back to say, um, we can't, um, you know, we, we can't keep it so simple. It is, in fact, quite quite complicated. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's it, it, part of it, too, and I, and I think this, you know, this idea about letting people tell their own stories, it feels like we're in this moment, too, where um, at least some journalists are um, putting the power back into, into people's hands and letting them really drive the bus about the narrative. And I think that's a really important moment that we're having um, because within anthropology, for the longest time, you know, the people who were writing about Latinos, you know, the ethnographic work in Mexico about Mexicans um, was not done by Latinos. And so you um, – there's been – and which is – which, you know, gives you a particular kind of narrative. And I think now that um, more Latinos are getting into the academy, becoming anthropologists, working in their own communities, you're getting a different kind of storytelling, which I think is, is very much uh, mirroring the way in which um, we're seeing this movement happening within journalism as well. So – Jason, let me start with you because I think it's really interesting as an anthropologist how you build trust in the field with these voices, especially when the situation and trust might not be forthcoming. And then Maria is a journalist, but how do you build trust in when you when you are dealing with Honduran smugglers, which people go like, why are you shining a light? Like how how is that as an anthropologist? How do you build that trust? You know, for me, the um the, the trust building, the, the sort of advantage of being the anthropologist is that I have a lot more time to work on a single story. And so much of the trust building happens with just prolonged um, visitations, you know, working in the field for, you know, for years, working with folks for extended periods of time to the point that, um, you know, that I've demonstrated that I'm really committed to them. And and I think the other part of it, and I, I, I take this from a, a very good friend of mine, an anthropologist named Philippe Bourgois, who, you know, he says... As an anthropologist, you can't write about people unless you love them. And and I at first that comment used to make me a little uncomfortable, especially now I'm like well, I work with you know with these Honduran smugglers that who who are hard to love. Um, 
But then, you know, I've kind of come to realize that I have to be committed to those folks. And in some ways, I do have to love them, even when they scare the hell out of me um, or make me enraged. I have to be committed to them on this kind of personal level so that then I, I feel like I'm um, I'm keeping myself in, in check about how I'm writing about other people's experiences. Um, but that, I mean, that's a really um, un- uncomfortable position to be put in. And it's one that, um, for me, the it's about... It's both the, the the trust building through time as well as the constant um, reflection back on what am I doing? How am I doing this? How am I being viewed by others? Am I being disruptive? Um, am I doing more harm than good? You have to you you have to you have to actually love humanity <laughs> um, in order to be able to put yourself into a position of um, you know, put yourself in that that person's shoes. You have to believe in redemption. Um, in my job as a journalist, it's also to ask the tough questions. Um, so I have been with smugglers. I, I have met them. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, some are, are human beings who have a lot to, um, atone for and others see what they do as, um, as a human right. You know, I mean, one of the great travelers of the world, um, was Jesus Christ, right? Who was crossing borders? Who was a refugee? Who? So the notion that people have this sense of we are free and when there must and we can travel as human beings is actually a deep, powerful conceptual um, thought. But what I what I do is I try to communicate through my actions and the tone of my voice and how I'm seeing people. That's what I use to get them to um, to look at me with a possibility of an opening of trust. Um, and I think the other thing that happens is that, you know, people want to tell their – many people want to tell their stories. They're never asked. They're just simply never asked. And so um, in that sense, a lot of being a journalist is asking the questions but then just being quiet and letting people have a chance to tell their story. Yeah. I, I'm struck but. By- I'm, yeah, Jason, I, I'm struck by both the fact that you both mentioned the word love. And Jason, you sounded a little bit like, oh, like, ooh, that's a little bit like touchy. Oh, no, I'm super touchy feely. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that mean? What does that mean, like, with love? I mean, I hear Maria talk about it as well. And, and actually, Maria and I, like, you, you tell me that all the time. It's like, be a journalist with love. So what does that mean? Like, what does, it, what does love mean in this context? And anyone can jump in on well, this one. I think people know it, right? When you talk to them. They, you know, they got, most people have a pretty good sense of why are you here? How do you feel about me? Are you fully present? And is there, yeah, is there love in the room? Um, I think that you can't really teach that. Like teach someone, okay, go do this work, be an anthropologist, be a journalist, and and, and love people as you do it. I think if you have it, you have it. And um, the great journalists that I've worked with and the anthropologists I've worked with who I really admire or have wa- observed they carry it into the room, and everybody knows that 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 they are there with um, with this with good intentions. And um, you know, if you want to call it love, that's great. I mean, I um, increasingly am, am calling it love, and uh, and I don't know what I would have called it before, but it, I guess before it was like I needed to be fully present. And now, um, over the years, as I've worked with people longer, um, it's just mm. I've just found a new, a new a new a new thing to call it. Yeah. Maria, there was love being used when you were a young journalist. Like, was that something that people were saying in the newsroom? No, <clears throat> you know what I mean. <laughs> no, but there were a few journalists um, 
who um, I watched in action as a budding journalist. And, um, and because they were white men, they were, in fact, allowed, given a little bit of space to, um, to, to maybe cross that boundary. Um, I, I think if you were a woman, if you were a person of color, you know, putting your hands on somebody, showing somebody like a sign of affection um, in any way might have been questioned. Mm. Um, but I picked that up and I was like, that's a really good tactic. And I'm, I'm a very, I'm a hugger. I, that's how I communicate. I'm a very <laughs> affectionate. Um, I'm a, I'm a very funny person. Um, also, yeah, you are. Know, You're I a think, funny person. I think. I'll give you that. So I use those, yeah. I use those to, to break the ice. And, um, and, and I think that actually you'll, you, you know, Jason and I know because we're professionals here, we know when to actually extend a hand and when not mm. to, which is an important part of the of, of, of the work that we do is knowing and, and kind of trusting that. So one of the things I think both of you guys in your work and you have to deal with data and statistics and but also telling these human centered stories and how does, you know, statistics and legal theory give us more context for the stories we tell, policy decisions, and how does it ground you, Maria, in your journalism? Because I feel like that's all, you know, <laughs> if you don't have data, like, where's the story? I mean, is that something that just, you, you just, you're a data geek about all this? And, like, how do you approach it? Well, I think the thing about data is that it's, you know, when you talk about it writ large, it's really, really fascinating. On the one hand, when you throw out these big trends, but I think, of course, what we like to do is we like to find the that human story behind the data. Um, you know, or we take a story like, you know, in Clarkston, Georgia, one of the most diverse square miles in the American South, right south of um, Atlanta. And there you have a man who would, you know, fit into, you know, uh, I mean, he's a conservative white Christian man um, in his eighth decade, um, you know, but... He's also he has a lot of problems with immigrants and people of color um, kind of becoming the majority. But he's also, you know, a trained Juilliard saxophone musician. And so we showed him doing that. He has a complicated relationship with race that I think is evolving. But we wanted to show like he's also a jazz musician as as contradictory as that may seem. Exactly. And that's the way I approach people all the time. (laughs) I mean, I got into a cab, I don't know when it was, a couple of days ago, and it was an an African immigrant. I don't know of which country, but I assumed it might have been Kenya. He was listening to um, country music, yippee-i-yay, yippee-i-yo, and he was singing along with it. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, people in Kenya love country music. like. Puerto so Ricans love country music. I, you know, you see my Instagram all the time, Maria. You probably think I'm like I live in Tennessee. I don't know any country <laughs> musicians, so then I probably just don't know the songs that you're talking about. But the point is, is that if we approach our work with a sense of each human being is really complex, um, but mm-hmm. still a capacity to see myself, to communicate, to to reach into their heart with um with with who I am and who they are I think it's kind of a beautiful part of the work that we do. Jason, I mean this is how do you balance that statistics data theory with with human human-centered stories? Well, it, it's funny over the years as my work has evolved um I went very much from someone who had been deeply invested in statistics and theory to someone now who 
I think statistics and theory are helpful when I need them to be. But, um, you know, I've become much more committed to the narrative and using theory and, and, and data when it, when it can be really helpful for understanding the entire, the entire context or to make a point. But, um, you know, increasingly, probably, I'd say over the last two or three years, I've been increasingly accused of being a journalist um, <laughs> by, by colleagues. You know, I gave, I've been giving <laughs> talks this year. Thing? Well, that's the thing, you know. I've been giving <laughs> talks recently and then the Q&A people are like, so what's the difference between what you do and, and what a journalist does? And they say uh-huh. it with this kind of disdain. And I say, you know what? If if you're calling me a journalist because I'm committed to words, to storytelling, um, to comp- compelling writing, I will take that any any day. Um, so, you know, I think that in the ivory tower, you can get really stuck with the statistics and the theory to the point where you can take a compelling human story and just kill it. You can overcomplicate it. You can sterilize it. You can do all these things that I think then – um, it becomes a, a way to show off, oh, look how many how many $100 words I know. And, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up in that world and I, I fit awkwardly in academia. Um, I'm, my favorite sort of description of myself is that I'm not smart enough to be impenetrable in terms of writing-wise. I just don't, I just, I don't have it. And, um, but some folks, that's their kind of bread and butter. And I would much rather party with you guys than um, <laughs> with a lot of the, you know, we're yeah, fine at you know, so we we can, uh, I because I, I just um, you know I I want to be true to the people that I work with, and I think the way to do that is to be um, is to put them up front, and then to, to use the, the statistics and the theory when it when it's helpful to, to, for for their stories, but not when it's gonna when it's gonna um, you know suck the life out of them. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned academia, and I want to talk a little bit both of a little bit about academia because both of you do work in and outside of the academic world. I mean. Maria, I've actually attended, I've actually spoken to your class. You're the Sor Juana Ines de la Cruz Chair of Latin American Latino Studies at DePaul, or you taught at DePaul. Uh, Jason, you're an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Michigan. My work as a professor is that I'm there for my students and that we are, um, there's a lot of them bringing themselves into the classroom. And we also spend a lot of time interviewing people because that's what I do for a living is to interview people. Um, but it's not like I'm doing research, academic research, and then, you know, writing about that research in an academic setting or teaching that research in my classroom. My classroom um, is really about the students. Um, even, for example, when I'm doing, when they're out journaling and they have to journal, their journaling sometimes makes them have to connect with nature. Um, be out in nature for half an hour in journal, which is like the opposite of kind of hardcore political science, you know, blah, 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 blah. So um, so the class is really about affirming them and, and, and their stories and studying um, very kind of modern topics in um, in our changing world, right? But as a journalist, that's when I'm actually out there interviewing people and researching and that, so those, it's kind of like two different hats for me. And by the way, when I teach, because I bring a lot of myself into the classroom and I really want to create less of a boundary and a barrier between myself and my students. So um, my my mentor who taught me how to be a professor, Cecilia Weissman, may she rest in peace. Um, she is the person who said, you know, if you're going to demand things from your students, you're going to have to give of yourself first. So I'm very honest with my students. They see me, they see me when I'm up, they see me when I'm down. It's And it's all off the record, which gives me, that's the kind of freedom where it's like, okay, 
So you guys are going to see something that nobody else gets to see because I'm your professor and we're on this journey together. And in that sense, it's really so much fun and, and quite beautiful. Um, Maria and I both have a very similar teaching style in that, you know, I tell the students, I come into this room and I want you to know that I want to be here 100% and I'm going to give you as much as I can possibly give you so that we can grow together and um, and have some meaningful interactions because it doesn't, I get nothing from coming up um, and just talking for an hour um, about things that um, that bore me or that, you know, that I'm not doing with any kind of, I, I need the, I need some fear, a little bit of fear, a little bit of emotion or a lot of, a lot of those things so that, um, that I can keep the students engaged, but then also that I can get, you know, give, give them what I'm expecting them um, to, to give me. Um, and that's one, I mean, I love, I love that aspect of, of teaching. It becomes harder though to move from the classroom into the academic sphere for me, at least because of the, um, the different sort of constraints that exist within my discipline about what people think I should be doing. Um, and so before I had tenure, you know, I very much had to crank out a series of, of journal articles that um, will put you to sleep, even though they're probably about interesting topics. I mean, it's like, man, like you're killing me here. And nobody ever said to me when I was a, when I was going up for tenure or in graduate school, no one ever said to me, okay, you do your work, do good science, et cetera, et cetera. And when you write, be kind to your reader. Nobody ever said that. Um, and partly it was because I read stuff that was not kind to the reader. I mean, painful <laughs> prose. And when I started working, when I had to write a book for to, for promotion, um, I was like, oh, I don't ever want to write a book. That sounds horrible. I got I to gotta do this thing I've been doing in article form, and now I got to do it for like 100,000 words. That sounds very soul-crushing if I have to write it in this way that I've been trained to do it. And so I decided, okay, no more reading academic prose. I want to just go back to, to novels and to music and to art and the things that really inspire me and see if I can take those things and translate this the data into something that um, that has some life to it. And people, I mean, I remember when the book came out, I had someone say to me, so do you think this is academic enough for you to get tenure? And I was like, man, <laughs> that's a horrible wow. question to ask someone who doesn't have tenure. Um, but I was like, well, Maybe, maybe not, but I don't care anymore um, because I really just want to to do things that feel good and I think and put things out in the world that I think um, are kind of true to myself and to others. And for me, that was having to go and to think about you know journalism and other forms of writing um, within a discipline that doesn't always, I think, um, value that. And now, I guess I'm. I'll ne- if if I can help it, I'll never write a journal article again. I'll never write a book <laughs> chapter you. again. Um, because I just feel like those are very, you know, and I've fought with editors in, in recent years about prose and, you know, format. And I'm like, you know what? I don't need this. I'd rather be doing other kinds of stuff. I mean, that, that's the one benefit, one of the big benefits of tenure for me is some, some freedom to, to perhaps be a, a freer thinker. Um, but there's definitely tension within the discipline about, oh, is what you're doing, is this type of writing, is this type of presentation um, academic, anthropological, or are you doing something else that, that, that scares us or makes us uncomfortable? Um. This is interesting. I mean, I, now that I figure that both of you guys should just form your own learning center or something, <laughs> I'm hearing similar styles, right? Jason, let me just press you a little bit on that because I'm curious, having been in sort of this world where people say it's not academic enough, how much do you think that has to do with your background, where you're from? or it, Does that have anything to do with it? Or do you feel like you're living in a colorless, ethnicless world where it's all about merit? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I'm in a discipline where... A lot of people um, study things like inequality, racism, sexism, um, hate, and then they can 
they can they can study it and be analytical about it in other places and critique it and then reproduce it within their own you know kind of workspace. And so the, the the tensions within the discipline are very much you know you know race and and, and mm-hmm. gender and class and heteronormative perspective. All of those things come to bear, and I think really do influence the ways in which people evaluate other people's work. Um, it's, it's inescapable, and um, yeah. So I think race oftentimes does does come into play when people critique things, get uncomfortable about certain things, um, get on the, get, get defensive, um, and and um, so yeah, it's it's yeah. definitely. Uh, something that we are struggling with as a as a discipline, and I'm hyper aware of it. I'm constantly being reminded that uh, you know the the scholarship that I do is is shaped by 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 race, class, gender, and all of and and my kind of feeling out of place in in the academy. I mean, I I work with people whose parents are professors. You know, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. So it's a uh, th- th- those things are constantly come up. And I used to be really. Um, kind of ashamed of those things yeah. or try to downplay the, the sort of differences or my uncomfortableness and, you know, these issues about imposter syndrome. And now I just really own it and say, yeah, it's fine, you know, and I'm happy to talk about these things, these things out loud and to say these things out loud. And um, so that's always there. And I think, but I think the other part of it too is that not everybody gives them as themselves to the work complete. I mean, there's not, you know, like, to say, oh, I, I do anthropology and, and and it's shaped by this love of people, I, I think there's a lot of folks who are uncomfortable by that. And so when, when they present something that is relatively safe and someone presents something that's like heavy, um, I think that there's this like, oh, well – you know, you're, you're all touchy feely because um, because you're a Latino or because of something or something else, and and that's less scholarly. I I, I raise it because there's I'm just sitting here, Maria, like thinking how Jason's comments, what he's saying in in his field, like really apply to the work that we do. It's really interesting. I actually lectured yesterday, um, and I told my students that I found it really challenging to wrap my head around the fact that that I was feeling imposter syndrome 35 mm. years ago um and the thought that they are feeling it even more deeply than me um is really sad the flip side of that um you know is that I'm also I'm also having them look at themselves as the total badasses that they are i have 3 students who are mothers this time for the first time in um, in one class, I have three students who are moms. And so I look at them and I'm like, you guys can do anything you want. Like if you want to be president, like you could be because you're a mother, you're working two jobs, you've got a little kid and you're full time in college. Like you can do anything. So I flip the narrative on them so that they are not seeing themselves as that, um, you know, in powerless, um, struggling to finish, um, sad, overwhelmed. They are those things, by the way. But um, I'm actively fighting. Um, you know, last two weeks ago, I did I did like a commercial break in my class. I was like, this is a commercial break to tell all of you how amazing each of you, each one of you is. The fact that you are here in class, that you have made it through all of the challenge. You are amazing. It was literally like a little commercial break because it came the week after this president was saying that he wanted to put troops um, on the U.S.-Mexico border. So um, I also think that what Jason is saying in terms of the not academic stuff about um, is really important because I feel like there is so much intelligence that my students are bringing in from DePaul because of their life experience. 
And I need to give them props for that. You know, like you guys that, um, you know, you may not have read, you know, the Odyssey when you were in high school because maybe your high school didn't do that. Um, and yes, I read it and it would I would be hard pressed to quote the Odyssey to you today. Um, and I'm, I'm an OK person, you know, so. Um, I I really want to encourage my students to own the power of their of their narrative of their own form of looking at the world um, of 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 really appreciating their moms and their grandparents their moms and dads and grandparents as you know total like kick ass yeah. people um, so I think that maybe you know is it is it as a professor is that part of my role is to be, you know, championing my students. I'm sure that there are some professors um, at colleges, Ivy League or not, who would say, nah, your role is to teach an academic subject. And I challenge that. As a Latina academic, I say I'm there to do something else, not just for the kids of color, by the way. Um, for my um, for my um, white students, the work is just as deep and just as profound and just as important. The, you mentioned about you know how your students were reacting to Donald Trump's announcement that he wants to send the National Guard to the border, and it kind of brings up the issue of the the symbolism and the material consequences of border militarization or the fact that the history of fencing and and sending troops to the border like there's a context to this um what's being lost jason how do you look at all this this type of symbolism this type of rhetoric right now this year and during this administration as an anthropologist or just looking at it more long term for you know for years because knowing that this has sort of been an ongoing issue on different levels right of, of intensity and um and extremes but how do you how do you deal with this? How do you how do you start addressing this? Oh man, how much time do you have? You know, I didn't think that in 2018 we'd be talking about walls. I really didn't. I mean, it's the stupidest, just the stupidest symbol for so many different things. And the fact that we're having, we're not just having kind of philo philosophical conversations about this stuff, but actual you know concrete where's when, where's the money going to come from kind of thing. When is it going to go up? That's been mm -hmm. really really challenging for me. And I sort of moved away from the U.S.-Mexico border about three, four years ago to start working in Mexico with, with these smugglers. And I just recently come back to, to start working in Arizona again. And, and I don't know. Um, you know, my thinking about it now is it's there. Um, I'm sort of conceptualizing the sort of immigration situation in relationship to the border wall and to the hyper-militarization. But um, – I'm trying to get in there and tell other other kinds of stories now. So I'm working with um, mm. with a lot of the U.S. citizens who live in in this town of Aravaca. So we're trying to get what is that nuanced perspective on the border wall, or on immigration, or on Trump, or on the border patrol? Can telling people's stories who live in that context help shine light on the stupidity of the wall and these other kinds of things? But I'm sort of um, I've avoided kind of engaging with it directly because I think when I do that, it's just um, a lot of expletives, and I just I'm like ah, and so now I, I you know I want to come in, and that's a problem too with 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 the border in general is that it's saturated, and so yeah, if you're going to work in that context, how are you going to tell something that how are you going to tell a story that is that is different from what's been told before, and that's that's interesting. Um, that is the real challenge. I tell my students like you should avoid the U.S. Mexico border now because um, you can't throw a rock without hitting a an anthropologist or a journalist. <laughs> Maria, 
What do you think? Yeah, it's it's um, sadly, you know, again, the fact that that some of us have been reporting about this for so long, it's it's really it, it's very complicated to feel like, well, I'm so glad that you're at the border and looking at this story. I wish you would have remembered 20 years ago, you know, <laughs> when we were saying report here, go there, talk about this. I mean, I have to be very honest with you. There have been. A couple of times over the past couple of weeks, and and this is this is frankly sad to admit, but because I'm I'm very upfront uh, about my emotions, there have been some moments when I have just said, "Wow, my body of work as a journalist really fell flat. I did not, I was not effective. If I had been effective, then we would not be where we are today, because the entirety of my career has been to try to." you know, add nuance um, and humanity to these very politicized stories. And um, and so sometimes I just, I feel like, oh, wow. Ooh, I really tried, but I wasn't, it, it wasn't enough to really impact the narrative. Um, on the other hand, you know, I'm really happy when, like on Saturday Night Live, you see them talking about dreamers or mm. DACA, you know, or immigration in a way that is um, more thoughtful. Of course, now, you know, in the immigration mm. rights movement, m- most people don't want to use the term dreamers um, because it's so exclusive to only one segment of the population. And a lot of people are are highly critical of DACA as a concept. Because what really should have been argued for from the beginning was comprehensive immigration reform, where it's not splitting up families and children from their parents and their grandparents. and their th- it, So this is now very confusing. And we've gone down a rabbit hole. And I was one of those people who, you know, when all the academics and all the politicians, frankly, were saying, well, we're just going to have to do this piecemeal. I was like, wrong decision, wrong place to go down, wrong rabbit hole to go down. And here we are. But I guess this is a question I have for both of you because, um, first of all, Maria, like, if you said what you said about your journalism impacting, like, then you're wrong because, <laughs> you know, I, you, th- this young journalist, you're a little younger. I'm a little bit. I'm still an old dude. Like, um, I was inspired by you, so um, you know that, and I Thank tell you. you that. But is it because? I guess it's this. It's because the work that was being done ahead of time, like you, Jason, and you, Maria, that. It it does feel repetitive. It does feel like, oh, like, here we go again. Like, I have to remind people that this has been ongoing for 20 years. Like, how do you deal with that in a human way? Because you both have been out there. Well, I don't think I have an impact on, on much of anything, at least um, not on, a, like, a policy level. Um, and I gave up that hope a long time ago because it's, um, it's such a heavy weight to carry, right, that my work is going to do this thing. And... Um, I'm I'm committed to the work and I love it and I love people and I and I don't partly I also don't know what else to do you know I'm like this is I know it's it's so important and I'm 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 okay with just fighting the good fight because it the it energizes me on a daily basis even when I'm like so depressed about the news and about oh my god another question about the wall are you kidding me um, I balance that out with you know what. I, I got I got work to do. I got stories to tell. I've got um, you know people to um, to connect with, and I just want to keep putting the stuff out into the world. And for me, I think about because I get the, the the policy question a lot. Like, what you know, what would you recommend as a sort of policy change, or are you engaging with policymakers? And I'm like, I've given up on those guys. I think um, because the policymakers 
understand a lot of this stuff and either don't make decisions because their hands are tied or because they don't care or because they're invested in the way that the system is in place already, um, what I want to do then is mo- is motivate the individual reader to um, to to become more informed, to learn more, to be impacted, and then let them decide what they're going to do with that. Um, that for me feels feels kind of more um, more doable. And you know, when I go back, I just got back from Arizona a few a few days ago, and one of the guys that I um, that I worked with for the book, main character guy that I call Memo, um, I, I had lost contact with him for about a year and a half, and I went to his house, and he was basically dying of um, drinking. And so we spent I spent three days doing this kind of intervention um, and just left Arizona so depressed and just been trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do next for him kind of thing. And um, do, I, do I tell that story? Um, and, you know, part of me is like, yeah, you know, people need to understand that the – the border wall, immigration, immigration reform kind of thing, you know, the American dream. I mean, the American dream is, is not, is the American nightmare for a lot of people. Um, and, um, and I, I so I, and so I want to stay close to that. And I want people to be impacted by those individual stories and hope that they can take something away from it that's much bigger and that will go out into the world and, and do something. And that's what keeps me less depressed about this current um, political moment. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think one of the things hearing from both of you you kind of saying like it, the focus is not the U.S. Mexico border, and both of you guys are doing work and looking outside of that, like looking at the U.S. You know, everyone seems to be focusing on the U.S. relationship with Mexico, but like for example, Jason, you're looking at smugglers working between Honduras and Mexico and Maria. I mean, the reports the that you've been working in Central America. I mean, uh, Latino USA won a Peabody in 2014. Well, it was actually on <clears throat> on Latino USA. Um, I don't know how many years ago, maybe, I don't know, 18 years ago, um, when I was saying things like, you guys, migration from Central America, that's what the future looks like. It's Central America. Everybody is focusing on Mexican immigrants. The Mexican economy is growing. Focus on Central America. That was like 20, 25 years ago. Um, we did, under the direction of Maria Martin, a series of um, of reports um, about 20 years ago about Central America. So we have been telling this story because um, in a lot of ways, um, the story of Central America is the story of the United States and its entanglement with Central America. Um, if <laughs> The fact that people kind of think of this area, Central America, and they're like, why are all of these people from Central America now coming here? And it's like, well... There's a long history. You want to hear about it? It goes back to, you know, I mean, not, and I'm not even, I'm not a historian, so I should not take, um, you know, I have to be careful here. But, you know, from the early 1900s, 1930s, um, the United States was involved and in intervening in, in Guatemala, in Honduras, in El Salvador, in Nicaragua. It takes a lot for the national media to understand a region unless there's a war. And the wars ended, the official wars ended in Central America um, a couple of decades ago. So people have kind of moved on. And it's like, you know, our relationships with these countries have not moved on. They've only gotten more intense. And now, of course, you know, young people from Central America are all being labeled as members of MS-13, just because they are young, maybe have a couple of tattoos, they're immigrants from Central America. They're all now carted off into this. And that is a very scary part of um, of other people taking control of this narrative. You know, I think you guys have a different level of frustration than 
than I think the anthropologists work in the region because you're reporting on this stuff so constantly and the historical amnesia in the American public is really striking. Like, oh my God, like, um, so I, I, you know, I, I, I really have a lot of respect for you guys because I think the grind is so much more intense, um, you know, because I can kind of lock myself up in a room for, for three years and then something comes out at the end of that period. But to be reporting on this stuff continuously and then to be, have to be constantly explaining to people, look, there, is, there are numerous problems in Central America and, it's, and many of them are our fault, the American public. Um, that is – that's a very, very aggravating conversation to keep kind of having. Um, and, you know, when I have it lately, it, it's – sometimes it's even with, you know, with the journalists who are reporting in the region. Um, I had someone ask me once. They said, OK, a British journalist, how would you, what would be comprehensive immigration reform for you? What would that look like? And I said, well, you know, you got to stop the drug war in Mexico, stop sending weapons to Mexico, um, stop meddling in, in um, politics in Central America, um, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, and stop, snor- stop snorting the cocaine in the U.S. that's produced in these different places, you know, all these kinds of things. And the people saying to me, well, don't you think that's those countries' problems? You know, and I'm going, oh, my God, you're like the Latin American journalist for your agency and you don't understand this? Um, and then we're – and I'm not talking about – you know the um, the Mayberry Gazette. I mean, this was a big, a big um, agency, and I was just like, "Oh my God!" Like, if you don't understand this, how can we then expect the American public to understand this? Um, so it's really, um, you know, for me, it's trying to show these connections. And maybe that's a different. That's kind of the different, the different stories that I want to tell. I mean, with the whole smuggler thing, it's I want to tell the stories of smugglers as as both people. Um, caught up in these difficult situations, but also as products of these much larger systems that have h- deep history. And so when we say we're going to build a wall, when we deport people, gangbangers from L.A. to, to Central America, uh, when Hurricane Mitch devastates a region, all of these things function to create then a scenario where then the smuggler becomes um, an, an important person. And those are the kind of stories that I, that I want to tell now because I feel like um, if I can tell it through the lens of, a, of an individual and then you know, and, and I want you to remember their names and their kind of life experiences within the context of this much larger thing that I think can be really um, forgettable. I mean, all of a sudden now, like, oh, my God, the kids from Central America are coming. People don't remember 2014. I mean, that 2014 has been erased from the from the popular imagination, um, which is like is very, very striking. And then so when you say to folks, when you try to get them to understand the longer history of of, you know, American immigration and you bring up the Chinese Exclusion Act, you bring up in, um, Japanese internment camps, you bring up Ellis Island and how horrible it was to be Irish in the early 20th century. Maybe people are like, huh, what? You know, um, that's a real bummer. Well, you guys aren't bummers. You guys don't bum me out. Keep telling your stories. Keep um, sharing those voices. Um, Jason De Leon and Maria Hinojosa, I just want to thank you for your time Um, I thought this was really interesting. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. This episode of Anthropod was produced and edited by myself, Arielle Milkman. Beth Dardurian is our executive producer. Many thanks to our guests this time, Jason DeLeon and Maria Hinojosa, and our moderator, Julio Ricardo Varela. We'll see you next time on the next Wrap-On series about gender and sexuality.